0: Podglomerate original. In
1: nineteen forty seven, there were six thousand TV sets. By nineteen fifty two, 12 million which is like suddenly a few people had it and suddenly oh my god everyone has it and now it's just part of the culture that's what happened in 1948 with the launch of two very important shows but before we talk about those two shows before that welcome to the history of stand-up
0: a show about the evolution of stand-up comedy American stand-up from vaudeville to Netflix yeah I'm Andrew Steven, and that's Wayne Fetterman. You may know him as a stand-up comedian, actor, writer. He's also a professor of stand-up and comedy at USC. You'll learn a little bit more about us later. But first, television. And I know this is the history of stand-up, but the story of TV and the story of comedy are intertwined. And so to fully appreciate how we
1: got to where we are today, we have to look back. I want to explain this very clearly. Of course, yes, there were comedians and comics and monologists and humorists and MCs going back years and years and hundreds of years. But really until 1947 no one was actually called a stand-up because that term didn't exist. They were doing what we now know of as stand-up, but they weren't called stand-ups. And the term first showed up in like trade publications like Variety and Billboard. And then it was eventually used by talent bookers and club owners as like a shorthand way to describe like a kind of act. This person would perform alone at the very front of the stage, required no musical accompaniment, and just stood there telling jokes. Back in the vaudeville days, they had these monologists and they called it performing in one. But because the stand-up term was coined in late 1940s, I think... That might be a good place to start. Okay, so from 1880 to 1920,
0: vaudeville was the primary source of entertainment in America. But silent films were starting to eat away at their audiences. And when sound movies were introduced in 1927, and then came network radio in 1928, and then the stock market crash of 29, it was just too much. Vaudeville hung in for a few more years, but it was basically over. And if you're unfamiliar, Vaudeville shows were these big variety shows that people would go out to the theater and see. And they would have comedy, and they would have juggling, they would have big animal acts like elephants, music, and dance. And it was a place where a lot of the what we now call stand-up comedians
1: got started. Modern stand-up as we know it which is which is i consider one person in front of a stage usually with a microphone getting laughs without props or anything like that just straight just using his mind to tell jokes and that kind of start that style started with a guy named Frank Fay Frank Fay
2: yes
1: he was at the pinnacle of show business at that time vaudeville
2: we move on to the New York Winter Garden Theater, where the brightest stars of Broadway are paying honor to the Schuberts in commemoration of the theater's 25th anniversary. Here's Frank Fay, another present-day star who appeared in this theater early in his career. Next, one of Broadway's youngest and best comedians, Milton Burr. Wa- Thanks, Mom. I'm the nearest.
3: The nearest I ever
2: got to the Winter Garden was the Roxy, but I'll tell you the truth. I, uh, I'm at the present time at the uh, Paradise Restaurant over here. It's a marvelous restaurant. Very beautiful. Three waiters teach table. One gives you the check, the other two revive you. It's wonderful. <laughs> but uh, I feel marvelous. Okay, I was just standing outside the Waldorf story. That's where I live, outside the Waldorf story. And they-
1: vaudeville started in the late 1800s, but really picked up in the early 1900s. But the pinnacle, the place that really would stamp you as like you were top of the mountain was this theater in New York called The Palace. And it's still there. It's still there. Comedians were very much like kind of the Marx Brothers where it was a little bigger. It was like who
0: they were didn't really make sense. That's the voice of Judd Apatow. And besides writing, directing, and producing some of the biggest comedy films of all time,
4: He's also a huge
0: fan of comedy.
4: Couldn't really place right, them right, right. in society. They didn't even exist really as human beings. Harpo is this guy's chasing women, but he also plays the harp and is really emotional. And <laughs> Chico had some vague ethnicity, right. but they're all brothers, and yet is Chico he's Italian, maybe, right. but the other ones aren't. Are they related? <laughs> and then Groucho, you know, he's in face paints and there's this fake mustache and eyebrows and what is that? And he's so like smart but insane and, mm-hmm. and I think the rebelliousness of it amused me to no end.
1: But what Frank Fay did was like, I'm going to put away the baggy pants, I'm going to put away the funny nose and the hat and the big thing and I'm going to just stand on stage wearing a nice suit and tell jokes and MC at the palace as himself as himself.
0: If you've ever seen any videos of the Marx Brothers, you know what they're talking about. These big, broad characters and costumes running around doing a lot of physical bits. Now, to be fair, the Marx Brothers did also incorporate a lot of verbal wordplay, especially Groucho. It was not just physical, and by the way, it was written by some of the great comedy minds of the day, but there was still a distinction between the characters they were playing and who they were as real individuals. Whereas Frank Fay was himself. And to give you an idea of that, this, this song that you're listening to underneath me talking right now is Frank Fay earnestly singing a love song. That's not broad character comedy.
1: And again, it's, it's evolved a lot since then, but that's what inspired Bob Hope, and that's what's inspired, all of these comedians are like, oh, you can do this, you can be just a guy.
0: This may sound simple, but honestly, it just wasn't done in comedy before this. And it started a trend that continues to today.
4: I'm always fascinated by people expressing who they are directly. That, that's and you feel like that's the secret of great stand up? I think so. It's just, you know, for the most part, it's just a one on one expression of how you see the world. And I think as a kid, I didn't understand how the world worked, and I liked that they were people who decoded it for me and said, "This is what's funny about it. This is what's sad about it. This is what's bullshit about it." Mm-hmm. And I leaned on those voices. And I, I I think about it, and I I liked when people opened up to me. I liked the vulnerability of, you know, this is my story. You, you, you know, I used to work with people like T- Tim Allen and. Rich Scheidner, and you know they, they were just telling you you know about their yeah. their lives, and they were tearing down the house yeah. which I also so enjoyed like, I couldn't believe how how much they could
1: kill so that happened in the 1800s and even before then there were people that were hired to be funny at a wedding or something like that so when we talk about modern stand up I like to point to Frank Fay because that was he was making money doing it he was known as this guy and he influenced Bob Hope. Yeah, so pre-1940s, Frank Faye was the closest thing to sort of the modern stand-up we see today. He wasn't the closest thing, but he was the one that invented the style that created the modern Ladies stand-up.
2: The star of our show, Bob Hope. Thank you very much. Thank
1: you. Bob Hope became way more successful than Frank Faye
2: hometown Cleveland. Cleveland is all decorated for the sesquicentennial. Nice way of cleaning your teeth. (laughs) Yes, sir, there are signs everywhere saying 150 years old, and I'm still trying to catch the guy who put them all under my (laughs) picture. We had a wonderful plane trip in here on the Constellation, the Constellation that's Buck Rogers dream come true. We came across in the stratosphere. In fact, we were so high, W.C. Fields flew escort for us all the way to Kansas City. (laughs) Over the Rockies, the stewardess served lunch. I said, "Why peppermint sticks for lunch?" She said, "That's celery. Your nose is bleeding."
1: There was a number of people who picked up on it, and soon Milton Berle and all of these guys were doing it. And that, and then there was different offshoots of this guy on stage, and then eventually women.
2: But I love this old town of Cleveland. Somehow, even the wind off the lake doesn't seem as cold as it used to be. Of course, I've got underwear now. I've got a brother here in the wholesale meat business. He had trouble with shortages, but he's getting plenty of meat now. The Cleveland Indians are selling them all their old ball players.
0: So, in the late 1940s, we finally have someone who looks like and someone who talks like what we would consider a stand-up comedian.
1: I did a search of the New York Times, just stand-up. Larry put in the term stand-up with the dash, without the dash. Let's one see. word. Yeah, one word, the three ways you can do it. And before the late 40s, there's no mention of stand-up when talking about comedy. Whether you're talking about Milton Berle or Bob Hope or Burns and I, no, it just doesn't exist. But then in the late... Surprisingly, bo- a lot of sit-down comedians. <laughs> exactly. There was lounging comedians. There was a, a few that were just uh, bicycles. You know, the it, bedridden... Yes, the bedridden comedian, of course. So they, they... But there was no stand-up at that time. And we're still trying to figure out how the word stand-up be- came into the lexicon. And Cliff who wrote this incredible book called The Comedians. I'm holding it right now. He interviewed a guy who claims that it was from the mafia.
5: Yeah, it's not uh, my story per se. It is in my book. I've talked to this talked about this with Wayne before that uh, I quote somebody in the book who's telling this story because I cannot um, really in good conscience say that it's true, but it's an excellent theory. This elderly comedian named Dick Curtis gave me his take on the origin of the phrase stand-up comedy. And... And he appeared on an episode of The Dick Van Dyke Show. He's a journeyman comedian, a good comedian, a working class comic who never really broke into the big time. He told me that the origin of the phrase stand-up comedy came from the mafia or the mob and mob control because they not only controlled nightclubs, they also controlled the fight racket, boxing. Boxers were notoriously corrupted by mob influences, controlled by mob influences, and a Boxer that stood up there and could take punishment, a boxer that the mob controlled, a boxer that didn't fall down as soon as he was being hit, was considered a stand-up fighter. And a associate of the mafia who could be trusted, who wouldn't squeal, who wouldn't talk too much, who wouldn't rat people out... He was considered a stand-up guy so into the lexicon of mob controlled nightclubs came this phrase a comedian that you could rely on that you could book who might see nefarious activity and not say anything about it he was considered a stand-up comedian so that's according to this comedian dick curtis who was performing stand-up for the mob in the 1940s and 50s that was his um belief as the origin of the phrase they didn't retain a comedian if they could not hold the audience's attention could not get them to laugh because that meant the club would lose money um you know the more um appealing the entertainment the more liquor that was sold the more food that was sold so that was always an important condition in terms of uh, las vegas a stand-up guy was somebody who could do their time exactly your contract to do 45 minutes they do 45 minutes if you did 46 minutes You'd be fired. And the reason was you were keeping the gamblers away from the tables an extra minute. And that was considered a big loss of profit by the mob and the people that owned and managed uh, uh, Las Vegas hotels. So, again, that would be considered a stand up guy, somebody who could stick to their time.
1: Basically, stand up came to mean it was a shorthand for a book, somebody who booked these acts. Like, what do we have? We have a singer. We have a juggler. We got a uh, contortionist. We got a plate spinner. We got a comedian. What is it? Is he stand up or does he need music or anything like that? Stand up meant you didn't need anything. You just stood in front and performed. Now in vaudeville, when Frank Fay was doing it, they called this performing in one, which meant in front of the curtain. So maybe they could set up the elephant act in the back while the stand up was doing his, his little shtick. Yeah,
5: well, you know, a lot of uh, other comedy historians or showbiz historians kind of focus on the Catskill Mountains as the most important incubator in the post-vaudeville period and the pre-television era. The Catskills are sort of like a offshoot of what was happening in Manhattan. Everybody who visited the Catskills, who patronized the Catskills, everybody who performed in the Catskills was mostly focused in New York City after vaudeville fell through and vaudeville theaters started showing movies, they would book some performers to perform on stage live before the movie. Most people were there to see the movie, but they would have a comedian, a dance team, maybe a juggling act, um, and an orchestra on stage. And these were called presentation houses. They were mostly former vaudeville theaters that were turned into movie theaters that still had a brief 45-minute live stage show before the film, and a comedian would always be on that bill Doing anywhere from five to 15 minutes of material. And that's where these guys learned their craft. The Jack Carters, the Henny Youngmans, the Alan Kings, um, all around New York City. And then on top of that, there were also nightclubs. But those presentation houses were really, really important for stand-up comedians.
1: So right around this time, in 1947, there were 6,000 TV sets. By 1952, 12 million.
0: And new TV shows were popping up and needed to put something on the air.
5: Who did they book? They booked all the comedians that had experience and who were available nearby.
0: And it just so happens television shows were filming in New York. Which brings us back to how we started the episode, with two TV shows that changed everything.
1: Let's talk about these two very big shows that began both in June 1948 one the first is called the texaco star theater with milton Berle, and the other one is called the ed sullivan show at the time called toast of the, host of the town until 1955 when they changed it to the ed sullivan show who was the host of that show good evening ladies and gentlemen tonight live from new york the ed sullivan
0: show So how was this influential in the sort of evolution of the modern stand-up? Because
1: this show became the show for comedians to perform on. Because every show would have at least one comedian. Sometimes, I was looking at the list, sometimes three comedians in an hour show. Three different comedians, Jackie Vernon, Toadie Fields, and then some Ricky Lane and Velvel, who was a ventriloquist.
2: And
3: now, ladies and very proudly, presents the star of our show, the lovable Miss Tony Fields. Hello. Hello! What's the matter? You're shocked, huh? You didn't think I'd be this adorable in person, right? See, they needed something precious, and this is it. Did you hear him say, the star of the show? I get goosebumps. I stand backstage every night, and I wait and say, here she is, the star of the show, you want to know, whoever dreamt I'd ever see my name on the side with or Kapopanik <laughs> And to think I changed my name from Sophie Feldman yet <laughs> But why you're laughing I want you to know something Only two years ago I rode by this hotel every day in the taxi cab And I returned to the passengers in the back And I'd say, Someday Someday. But you know, I started here in Las Vegas. I don't know if you realize that. Right across the street at the Stardust Hotel. I was in the Lido show. Did you know that? Yes, I was in the line. I was the last four girls from the end.
0: But why
1: did Ed Sullivan put these stand-ups on? I think he really liked it. And also, I think it was easy to book. And then in between that, remember we talked about Vaudeville earlier. The rest was basically an old timey vaudeville show, except those vaudeville acts used to do 17 minutes and they would do six or eight or 10 on the Sullivan show. So they had, do you know what a plate spinner is? Yeah. They Somebody would have plate spinners. S- spins plates. Yeah. It's kind of in the title. But you, do you know what that yeah, is? On the, on the yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, on yeah, the dowels yeah. and fingers. So they would have plate spinners. They would have uh, animal acts. They would have jugglers. They'd have contortionists. They'd have bits from Broadway shows that would come in and do it. This was all from New York. Yes,
2: Eddie Albert, Lainey Kazan, George Kirby, Charlie Manna, and many more. What a show. The Ed Sullivan Show tonight on CBS.
1: Like if you won the World Series, you would come on the Ed Sullivan Show. It became a cultural thing that Sunday night, eventually at 8 o'clock, I believe the show started out, it was at 9 for the first season, but at 8 o'clock for like all of those years, the family could get together watch Ed Sullivan, watch just old time variety. So it really brought a lot of these acts to the mainstream and yes. to, the, to
0: the nation and to the world.
1: And suddenly you became famous and you could tour and you could play Mr. Kelly's in Chicago, or you could play uh, these clubs, the Eden Rock in Miami, or you could play in Washington, D.C., especially if it said direct from the Ed Sullivan show. This was a
0: stamp of approval. And so you're saying, too, that they would perform, They they could now be booked at these clubs across the nation clubs not in the way that we think of comedy clubs today
1: there was no such thing as a comedy club back then these were night clubs were they b- being called stand-ups then or mostly starting comedic- starting, starting, starting to, to be, be called, called stand-up but mainly just comedians but basically yes it was starting to be called stand-ups in in like if you read it in like a review in billboard magazine or in variety or the, how it might refer to somebody Jack Carter as a stand-up, or maybe in uh, promotional materials. Ma- I don't know. I think it was still basically an industry okay. insider term until the '60s. Okay,
0: and so and when they would perform at these nightclubs, it would maybe between musical acts, yes, or yes. you know, would uh, before a Or mus- you know, before whatever, or could th- just
1: a co-headline, or like a co-headlining headlining situation, or so sometimes okay. they
0: would be the the quote main attraction. You might
1: be the like. Like, there was an act called Jimmy Durant. And now, here he is, the
2: one and only Jimmy Duranty, in person.
1: He played piano. He was a funny guy. He had a big nose. He was in movies. So he would headline a lot of these things, and then he would always have a music act with him, as opposed to a comedy act. That's just the way they booked back then. Again, all based, based on this vaudeville uh, paradigm, where you would just have people... You know, they thought the variety was the way to do it. And then, obviously, uh, Vegas opens up in the the early 50s. So now you have another venue where you could go perform. And then if you got extremely successful, you could maybe even parlay it into becoming an actor in movies or sitcoms, which is what a lot of
2: comedians did. Danny Thomas as Danny Williams. Gene Hagen as Margaret Williams with Jerry Jackson and Rusty Hamer as their children in Make Room for Daddy.
0: This is an example of that. Danny Thomas, a nightclub comedian, played a nightclub entertainer in the sitcom Make Room for Daddy that started in 1953. And it ran for 11 seasons. I want to touch on, too, just... Yeah. Reiterating the cultural significance of the Ed Sullivan Show. Yes, um, outside of the comedy spectrum, yeah. you know, you, you brought the
1: Beatles to America. Um, you know, uh, televised Elvis Presley for the first time, or no, not for the first time. But I, I know all about what happened with Elvis Presley in 1956. I'd love to talk about it. What else do you know about Sullivan? Um, that's those are the the two that I know. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about Sullivan. Like he was this. Great presenter of greatest generation era entertainment. And now when you look back on it, he's basically known for presenting these music acts. So by 1956, I know we're going in opposite order. It's cool. It's cool. Elvis does two appearances on the Milton Berle show. Elvis Presley does this amazing... They're still talking about it version of Hound Dog on the Milton Burrow show.
2: You ain't nothing but a Hound Dog. dog.
1: At the end, stops the band and does almost what they call halftime.
2: Very slow dancing. They
1: have the camera's full shot of him and it's an amazing cultural moment later at the time presley gets huge backlash like this is vulgar this is we shouldn't be showing this sensual too way soulful he's never done anything like that that before he's already he's already he's already been on the dorsey show and so uh, but he had never done anything that overt i think even before or since like as far as just he was already pushing some buttons, but that really jumped over the line. Crazy, Mixing my metaphors, crazy. yes. And then so he does it on the Milton Berle show, which again is a Milton Berle's a fading star. He's being canceled, and so he does this version of it, gets a lot of flack from it. So then he does the Steve Allen show, and and the ratings are good. So Sullivan, who didn't want to book Elvis because he had seen what happened on Burl and other than that, so I was like, oh, he's getting ratings. And if there was one thing about Ed Sullivan, he loved ratings and he knew that young people would tune in.
0: Yeah, but but how does this tie into
1: stand-up? Why is this important? Listen of what Elvis Presley says before he sings a song on The Ed Sullivan Show.
2: Wow. Uh... This is probably the greatest honor that I've ever had in my life. Uh, There's not much I can say except it makes you feel good. We want to thank you from the bottom of our heart.
1: That's how big Sullivan was and how important that
0: he gave that stamp to it. And that stamp would make a career. Yes. Sullivan and his show is now probably best remembered for presenting these rock and music acts like Elvis Presley and the Beatles. But almost every broadcast featured at least one stand-up, comedy team, impressionist, or ventriloquist. The Sullivan Show showcased comedians of the day like Jack Carter, Phyllis Diller, Myron Cohen, Jackie Mason, Red Buttons, Henny Youngman, and Alan King, And it also looked back to vaudeville and radio-era performers like Jack Benny, Bob Hope, Ed Wynn, Red Skelton, George Burns, Lou Holtz, and Frank Fay. And towards the end of the series, Ed Sullivan showcased newer comedians like Bill Cosby, Joan Rivers, Woody Allen, George Carlin, Robert Klein, and Richard Pryor. Would you say that the evolution of stand up and the evolution of television or American television and American stand up were are so intertwined like they both need like needed each other for the, them to Yes,
1: I do think so because in a way when you were doing stand up before television and again I I'm ignoring radio at this point because there were some unbelievable radio comedians and I'm a nut for that era of got they were really basically situational with the exception of Bob Hope, who did a monologue, who kind of invented the opening monologue uh, to start your show. He would do just a bunch of jokes that he had other writers do, and that continues. They do it today.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you. That's very nice of you. Thank you. Thank you, please. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh...
1: So that... All started in radio. So I don't want to short shrift, shift. I don't want to change. short change radio at all. But I do believe that television was very instrumental in Creating this comedy boom that happened in the eighties, that happened in the sixties with the records, that's now happening now, this reboom. And the opposite sounds true too, that yeah. that com- that television needed comedians in order for that medium to involve television was incredible for stand up because with it's just one shot, basically. Most of it's just they bear, usually don't even cut away. They just hold the camera on the guy and he does his act. Is in a way, even though you're performing in front of a group, when television, you're performing for one person through that television camera. Into their living into room. Into their living room.
0: And like music, like pop culture, like Elvis, etc. if it wasn't for Milton Berle and Ed Sullivan, if it wasn't for television, stand-up would be completely different.
1: It translated as well as anything ever on television. I think that's, that's something that's unique
0: in... To stand up is that even if you're in a theater, you're talking often about personal experiences or experiences that are personal enough, and so people can relate to them. It's why I think comedy and podcasting have has such the boom that we're in right now. No question, because you it's in your head, it's in your ear, it's you listen to it as you're falling asleep in your most intimate moments. Um, you know that that is something that is unique to the art of stand up is this
1: intimacy. No, and I agree with you about the podcasting. I feel like it took took that one-on-one experience even to a different level, especially because you can drone on and on and not have to worry about commercial breaks or... Do we have a sponsor now? Do we have to break away? Here's the crazy thing is like, as a kid, even though the Sullivan Show was on when I was a young kid, I was not allowed to stay up till eight o'clock on a Sunday night. So I really only saw a couple Ed Sullivan shows and I, that wasn't really an influence for myself, but for like Billy Crystal's generation, they would watch that show religiously and learn like, oh, that's, that's what a comic does. When I was starting to do comedy and even before I was always fascinated, especially by what Milton Burl did and What these comics on the Ed Sullivan show were doing uh, at the time and how it changed. So, anyway, that's why I was fascinated by the show.
0: So, you sort of mentioned it there, and I guess if people are going to be listening to us for the next few weeks, they'd like to know a little bit more about us. So, you're Wayne Fetterman. Yes. And what are your credentials? Well,
5: I do not have any. I do have some credentials.
0: (laughs) I mean, Right behind you is a name placard that says Dr. Fetterman. That's from a
1: commercial I did. (laughs) Not only have I been doing stand-up since the early 80s, professionally, but I'm also a comedy nerd. And now, believe it or not, because we're in this comedy boom, now colleges are starting to create curriculum around comedy and stand-up. For example... I am a comedy professor now at University of Southern California. USC. That's right. Is there anything I'm forgetting? I'm in mean,
0: countless television and film roles. Right, 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 right. Uh, I, most yeah. recently, Crashing with Pete
1: Holmes. Was that your most yeah. recent? So I did that. I've done a number of uh, acting roles, as well as... My goal was always to be a great stand-up comedian who could also act. Like, that was yeah. kind of my two-tracked... So you've hit it out of the park. Well, I don't... Thank you. You've, you've accomplished all your goals. I... Thank you. I feel like I haven't, but I appreciate you saying that. And I guess, I don't know if this is a credential, but I feel like from the very early age, I was a comedy nerd before there was such a term as comedy nerd. And this is what I think
0: is so great is myself. Yeah. So there's a huge gap between my comedy knowledge and my comedy fandom. Right. And so you are helping me. Learn more about the history of stand-up. Not just the listener. Anyway, so now you know a little bit more about us. And this is the podcast. Yes. And hope you check us out next week
1: when we talk about... There's a comedian out of Chicago who's never worked in a nightclub. Just kind of done little radio sketches. Named Bob Newhart. George
2: Robert Newhart, legally. Uh, I never bothered to change it uh, to Bob Newhart.
1: So they... Get Bob Newhart to go down to Texas and record. When it comes, it sells so, it's so popular, they can't keep, they can't print them fast enough. It's top of the charts, more than any music act, anything. Bob Newhart.
0: The History of Stand-Up is hosted, written, and produced by Wayne Fetterman and me, Andrew Steven. The show is also produced by Jeff Umbro and Chris Boniello of The Podglomerate. You can find more of their podcasts at thepodglomerate.com. Special thanks to Judd Apatow and Cliff Nesteroff. They both have books out about the history of comedy. So be sure to check out Sick in the Head by Judd Apatow and The Comedians by Cliff Nesteroff. Some of the music in this episode is by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more about this show, episodes, and extras at thehistoryofstandup.com, at histofstandup on Twitter, or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this show, please tell a friend and leave a review. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening.
5: Sonic Universe.